Hi everyone, welcome back to the Ask Mike show and today I'm joined with Howard Bloom in the studio. Howard, thanks for being a guest. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. And aside from being an author of Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, how do people introduce you? Well, at Channel 4 TV says I'm the Einstein, Newton, Darwin and Freud of the 21st century. Bless their souls. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure there's a funny story behind that. But what was the what was the starting point for you? Because Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me mold science and music together. So, well, talk to us about how it started. Well, I was ten years old. I was in Buffalo, New York, a godforsaken steel town on the shores of Lake Erie, and not a single person in Buffalo, New York, wanted to have anything to do with me. The other kids did not want me around them. And my parents really didn't seem to want me either. And one day a book appeared in my lap and it opened and it said the first two laws of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things run over your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And for the truth at any price, including the price of your life, it gave the story of Galileo. Um, and um, it told his story all wrong, pretended that he would have willingly gone to the stake to defend the truth. Took me 30 years to find out that wasn't true, but I needed the example of courage. And um, for a look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who invented the microscope and looked at pond water and discovered what he called animal kills, these tiny little animals moving around that we had shared this planet with ever since we evolved 200,000 years ago and had never known about before. So... That hooked me on science, so I got started on microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 10. And then at the age of 12, um, I started accumulating scientific credentials. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. I co-designed a computer that won science fair awards. Um, I was taken for a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, my local university. And instead of giving me a five-minute courtesy visit, he gave me an hour. And because the hottest topic that year in science was something called Big Bang versus Steady State Theory of the Universe. Fred Hoyle, uh, who was a broadcaster on the BBC, but was also just a terrific scientist, yeah. and George Gamow, um, were going head to head. And that was the year when Fred Hoyle was absolutely certain he would kill bang, Big Bang Theory forever, and no one would ever hear of it again. Well, he didn't exactly turn out to be right. So... But to resolve this question, you had to understand the Doppler shift. So we were discussing the interpretation of the Doppler shift for an hour. And he came out of his office and put his hand on my shoulder and told my mom, you don't have to, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships at any school he wants. And then I was also being tutored in outside the box science by the head of research and development for the Moog Valve company, which made the, I mean, it's a funny name, Moog Valve. Um, but they made the valves for the first jet plane to travel faster than the speed of sound and for the first rocket plane to reach the edge of space. So, but a peculiar thing happened to me when I was 12 going on 13 that led strangely to rock and roll because rock and roll was not a kind of music that I listened to. I listened to Beethoven, Bartok, Stravinsky, Rachmaninoff, people like that. And, um, it was this. I realized I was an atheist when I was 12 years old. Okay. But I took that realization and I tucked it in a dark corner of my mind 
where I could keep it out of the way, where I could not confess it even to myself. Why? Because the first party I'd ever been invited to in Buffalo, New York, was about to come up. <laughs> it was my bar mitzvah. And I was going to get a lot of presents. Yeah. And I, if I confessed I was an atheist, there would go the bar mitzvah. So I waited until the bar mitzvah was over. I spent two months writing thank you notes. Um, I finished the thank you notes at the end of August. And then I could finally confess I was an atheist. But there's a problem. The Jewish high holidays come up in September. Weeks after I had confessed that I was an atheist. And my parents, when the high holidays came, they weren't terribly observant. They only showed up in the synagogue um, when one of their friends had a child having a bar mitzvah or somebody was having a wedding or something like that. But they were dead serious about the high holidays. I mean, everything in the world to them. So they got me in a suit, which is almost impossible. I hate suits. They got me in their four-door blue Fraser automobile. Um, they drove me all the way to Richmond Avenue, which is where the synagogue was, and then I refused to go any farther. So I was holding onto the door frame with both hands like this, and my parents were tugging at my ankles, trying to drag me up the street like a sack of meat. And I had a sudden realization that I'm an atheist. So that means there are no gods in the sky. There are no gods under the earth. And yet there are gods in these scenes in the scene. Where in the world are they? They're inside my parents. They're in this incredible passion with which my parents are willing to drag their firstborn son up the street and mulch his face like a hamburger patty on the pavement. Um, and if they're in my parents, then those equivalent emotions, those equivalent passions are inside of me. So I went off on a hunt using my scientific tools for the gods inside of us. And um, and that led through many accidents um, to rock and roll. So it seems it seems like science was the the big start then. And you did mention, of course, that the music that you ended up in isn't how you started. So what was the what was the main reason behind starting the the PR company? Well, it, that's a, a long story. Um, I got into, look, I took that money from the bar mitzvah and I brought some a brand new piece of technology. It was something the small size of a small suitcase and it was called a high fidelity system. And it, it, that was, you know, the beginning of channeling the high pitched sounds to a tiny little speaker, a tweeter and um, the bass sounds to a great big speaker, a woofer. So I bought one of those. And in those days, a turntable, you played records on a turntable, and they had a spindle. And the spindle had this automatic feature where you could pile six records on it at a time. And something else had just been invented called the long-playing record. So you could take six of these long-playing records and stack them on your turntable and listen to music for three and a half hours without having to touch your machine again. And first, I was listening primarily to classical music. I used to stand in front of a great big Burl Wood radio with my uncle. It was a 1930s radio, but it had a 12-inch speaker. And we would compete to see who could identify pieces of classical music the fastest. And often, usually, we got it on the first bar, but sometimes we got it on the first note. Right. Um, but I didn't listen to rock and roll. That was the music of the kids who beat me up and humiliated me all the time. And um, when I graduated from NYU, um, I graduated from MIU many years later, 
Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude, and the head of the graduate physics department had been right. I got fellowships at four different universities um, for grad school, except it was not grad school in theoretical physics. It was grad school in something that didn't have a name yet. I was going to have to paste the program together myself. Today, it's called neuroscience. Ah. And, and I accepted the one from Columbia University, and then the summer came, and I had a sudden realization. If I went to grad school in neuroscience, that would be Auschwitz for the mind. Because here I was fascinated with taking my scientific tools and using to understand the ecstatic experience. Um, the experience where you feel lifted out of yourself and a part of something bigger than yourself and how that feeds the forces of history, how that is the forces of history. And in graduate school, I'd be giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a college for a, a psychology credit. And how many ecstatic experiences was I going to get to see um, in those classrooms? Zero. None. I would spend the rest of my life isolated from the thing I wanted to both experience internally and that I wanted to come to understand. So um, something strange had happened to me in my junior year of college. Poetry had been extremely important to me. I mean, to me, understanding science is one tool of understanding. Poetry is a whole different kind of tool of understanding. But both of them are about finding unusual points of view from which to see everything inside of you and everything around you. And that's what my life was becoming about. That's what I thought science really was about. So in my junior year, so poetry had been very important my whole life. And I was taking courses in poetry from the poet in residence at New York University, NYU. And one day the poet in residence said, Bloom, wait until everybody leaves the classroom. Lock the door, then sit down in that seat. I have something to say to you. And this did not sound good, Mike. Did not sound good at all. So I waited till everybody left. I closed the door. I sat down in the bawling out seat. And he said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year I'm telling you, you are the literary magazine. You're the editor of the literary magazine. And you don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now walk out that door. So I walked out the door looking terribly perplexed because I hated literary magazines. They had these pale blue covers that would put you to sleep, even if you were on uh, amphetamines. Um, they had choices of typeface so bad that they made you sick to the stomach. And if you took if you threw a literary magazine into a room where a rip-roaring orgy was going, you could empty that room in 30 seconds. That's how bad literary magazines were. So I stood there looking very upset, and a student walked by and said, you look upset about something. Can I help you? And I said, yes, I've just been named the editor of the literary magazine. And... And he said, uh, well, why don't you come downstairs with me for a cup of coffee? Now, Michael, I had never been allowed to be among humans in my life. I had had laboratory rats, guinea pigs, and guppies in my bedroom with me, and they don't have cups of coffee. So I didn't know what let's have a cup of coffee meant. I'd never done it before. I'd never been invited before. So I went down. He took me to a coffee shop, 
I ordered a glass of water. He ordered a cup of coffee. And he asked me one of the most important questions I've ever been asked, which is, if you could do anything you wanted with this literary magazine, what would it be? And I said, it'd be a picture book. And he said, okay, you've got your answer. So in addition to putting together a literary staff, I started putting together an art staff. And the literary magazine, the first issue, made a huge impact. The name of the magazine was the Washington Square Review. So I had the magazine 12 by 12 inches in a square and printed in four colors. And it just was a phenomenon on campus. Uh, the Student Activities Committee said they wanted to meet me. Well, I didn't know there was such a thing called the Student Activities Committee. And I certainly didn't know what it did. So I walked into a meeting with these two dozen people and, and they, and they doubled my budget for the second issue. Have you ever heard of a budget being doubled for anything? Um, oh, really? So the second issue came out and it was a sex and death issue. And half of my staff, my literary staff quit, um, when they saw the direction the magazine was taking. And this was five color printing. It was the normal four colors plus silver. Um, and it was really funereal looking. I loved it, yeah. but nobody else on campus did, including the poet in residence. <laughs> he refused to talk to me after that. But I got calls from the art director at Look Magazine, which was this gay, great, big, gorgeous, glossy, full-color magazine that came out twice a month. And um, from Evergreen Review, which was the leading bohemian magazine in the world back then. And from Boy's Life, which is the Boy Scouts of America's magazine. So when the summer came, after I graduated, I walked into the apartment of one of my artists, the most outstanding of the artists that I had collected. He was amazing. And there was no furniture in the room. And he and his wife and his three-year-old were on the floor crying. And I asked them why they were crying. And they explained that their furniture had just been repossessed, their electricity was being turned off, their phone was being turned off, and they were about to be thrown out of their apartment. And I said, this is unbelievable. Your work is so great. It's amazing. If I just took your work out for two weeks, I could get you enough work to pay your rent, and then I could find a summer job before I go to Columbia University. And he said, well, if you take out my work, you're going to have to take out the work of my best friend. He and I came down from Boston together. We wanted to start an art studio. Well, frankly, Michael, his best friend's work was so appalling that it made you, again, nauseous. You needed drama me to look at his work. Um, and But <clears throat> I said, yes, I needed to rescue him. And they put their work together in a portfolio, along with his best friend's wife's work, which actually was good. Um, and I started going out with this portfolio. And after the end of two weeks, I hadn't accomplished anything. And after the end of two and a half months, I had gotten New York Magazine interested in doing an article on us, a feature story, but I hadn't sold anything. And meanwhile, I, I had gotten married uh, just after my freshman year of college. And, um, and my wife, who this was her second marriage, and the first marriage was to a student at Dartmouth. And she started saying to me, you know how wives say things in deniable ways so they can even deny to themselves that they've ever said it. Yeah. Um, so she was telling me in utterly deniable ways that she was very tired of having student husbands. So between 
the possibility of losing my wife if I went to grad school, um, and the fact that I was going to be separated from what I found most interesting. Um, I called Columbia and said, look, I'll be coming in next year. And I built that studio up to the point where I was on the cover of Art Direction magazine. I invented a new animation technique for NBC TV. And we did all the advertising, all the graphics for ABC's 7FM stations, which were about to take a really risky move. Um, they were going to go from top 40, which was the dominant format of the time, to something new called progressive radio, which a bunch of crazy hippies had come up with at this very peculiar place called Bard College in New York State. They they could have lost their shirt on that transition. And and they loved the artwork that we did. And yeah. they loved it so much, they asked me to form an advertising agency to handle all their work, but I didn't want to learn time bomb. It was boring, as far as I was concerned. So going up to ABC, the head of promotion started schooling me in this thing called rock and roll. At that point, I could identify the difference between Carol King and James Taylor by the, by their sex. Um, James was a male name. So the guy with the boy's voice was obviously James Taylor, not Carol King. Um, and I'd heard a few groups like Procol Harum and the Jefferson airplane that had appealed to me. But she started giving me, she started sending me home with record albums and, giving me a regular overview of the field. And then one day she said, look, we're having a live concert in Studio B. If I gave you two tickets, would you come? So I said yes, and I took Peter Bramley, my extraordinary artist, with me. And Peter made me feel like I wanted to crawl under the seat and hide. Because from the beginning of the concert, he was on his feet, and he was whooping and hollering and whistling. and and there was a piano player on stage who was trying to get through a concert, for God's sakes. And it was very obvious that Peter was with me. I couldn't pretend he wasn't. So I was totally humiliated by this experience. Well, they took that live recording and they turned it into a record album. And it took me years and years and years to realize that Peter Bramley had helped make that concert. When you're on stage and you're performing to an audience, you feed off the energy of the most energized person in the audience, yeah. the person who's most engaged with you. Peter was that person. There was no question about it. And he fed energy to that piano player on stage. And that piano player's name was Elton John. So, um, and that album is, you still hear it today um, on the radio. So that was the beginning of my involvement in rock and roll. And there's one other thing to realize. When I was 12 years old, something happened to me that had never happened to me before in my life. I was in eighth grade, and one day in school, a girl turned her face in my direction, which had never happened before, <laughs> not deliberately anyway. And then she made eye contact, which was startling. And she said, I told my mom, you understand the theory of relativity. Well, back then, the reputation of the theory of relativity was that only seven people in the world could understand it, um, and they were all men. But I didn't dare confess to her that I didn't understand the theory of relativity because none of the kids in that class liked me, but they at least they called me the sickly scientist, which was better than not being recognized at all. Yeah. So 
So as soon as school got out, I jumped on my bicycle and I rode down to the local library where the librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. <laughs> and I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they rummaged through the stacks and they gave me a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators and a little skinny book by Einstein himself. Well, I had learned at that point that if you start with the hardest thing, um, if you start with a book you don't feel you can understand at all, by the time you get to the end, you've understood something. Now, this book was really daunting. It was seven words of English on a page, and the rest was all mathematical equations. And Michael, I've never understood an equation Ugh. in my life aside from E equals MC squared. So I'd gotten to page 50 by 8 o'clock that night. I started at 4. And then I had a sudden realization. My mom's going to put me to sleep in two hours at 10 o'clock. And if I don't understand the theory of relativity in the next two hours, I'm fried tomorrow. My goose is cooked. <laughs> um, I'm going to be utterly humiliated. So I turned to the little skinny book by Albert Einstein. And it had an introduction by Albert Einstein. And in that introduction, it was as if Albert Einstein reached out to the pages of the book, grabbed me by the front of my shirt, put his nose up to mine, and said, schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it is not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory, then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. Yeah. In other words, Albert Einstein had told me to become a writer. If I was going to be an original scientific thinker, I had to be a writer. So um, I had written... I dropped out of school for three years, which I didn't tell you about, and accidentally helped found the hippie movement. Another long story, but during that three-year period, before I'd finished my freshman year of college, I'd also done writing for the head of the Middlesex County Mental Health Clinic in New Jersey. So I'd done my first scientific writing for him between my freshman and sophomore year of uh, college. I had gotten a summer job writing for the Boy Scouts of America. And I wrote their hand, I wrote their, um, their handbook chapter on masturbation. That was the very first assignment they gave me. Um, I wrote their handbook on stalking and tracking. I read, I, I wrote their handbook on, um, camouflage. And then they had me write a book called 10 Steps to Organize a Boy Scout Troop, which is step by step how you organize a Boy Scout troop in a town that's never had one before or in a neighborhood that's never had one before. Now, the irony is, I had been thrown out of the Boy Scouts when I was 11 years old for utter incompetence at Morse code. And if they hadn't thrown me out for incompetence at Morse code, they could have thrown me out for incompetence at not time. <laughs> now, and here I was writing for the Boy Scouts. So I'd come to the conclusion that I could write for anybody. But in order to fulfill the Einstein imperative, you know, go out and write <clears throat> and write clearly and magnificently and deliciously and write in a way where people, once they start reading what you've written, can't put it down until they've finished it. I felt I needed to get into magazines. That was my next major step. And yeah, I met somebody who um, had a friend at Esquire. And so I spent two months um, doing field research on uh, uh, the teenage subculture um in Meriden, Connecticut, uh this big suburban community uh outside of New York City. Um and that didn't get me into magazines and I didn't know what I was going to be able to do. 
but there was a, uh, a clothing designer who had a little store about four blocks away from our studio, which was at Second Street and Second Avenue and Fourth Street in Manhattan, the Lower East Side, East Village. And I started buying her clothes, and the two of us started designing clothes together. So I walked into the office of an, a new underground fashion magazine <clears throat> that was being bankrolled by Baron Woolman, the guy who had bankrolled Rolling Stone. And I expected to be shown a table or a desk where I could lay down our portfolio and to see the three women in the room ooing and eyeing over the portfolio. And that never happened. Because as soon as I stepped out of the elevator, they looked at my clothes and their jaws dropped. And they said, do you have more of these? <laughs> and I said, I said, yes, I've got a whole closet full of them. Why? And they said, do you think you could write an article about these? And, um, well, of course I could. So I ran home that night and I wrote an article and I turned it in the next day and they made me a contributing editor. And I ended up writing 175 pieces for them. And then um, one of the other contributing editors to Rags went off and started her own magazine, Natural Lifestyles. And she wanted me to be a contributing editor. So I joined her as a contributing editor. Now, meanwhile, back at the art studio, there was a guy named Maddie Simmons, who I used to visit with my portfolio. And Maddie sort of took me under his wing like a father. Maddie had helped invent something new for a company called American Express. It was something called the credit card. And he had made a fortune. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so now he wanted to be a magazine publisher. And there was a magazine that came out of Harvard University every year that went on newsstands all over North America and sold out in two hours. And Maddie had an idea. He flew up to Boston. He met with the two kids putting out that magazine that year and said, look, I'll put you up in beautiful apartments in Manhattan. I'll give you high prestige salaries. I'll make you kings. All you have to do is turn out this magazine once a month for me. And they said yes. And thus, Maddie Simmons started the National Lampoon, which still is legendary in comedic circles. Yeah. And because Maddie was treating me like a father, he asked if we would do the art direction for the National Lampoon, we meaning my studio. So I took this project back down to the studio. And really, Maddie had been attracted by this 18-year-old astonishing surrealistic artist who had done all the artwork for ABC's 7FM station. He was an artist who none of the other members of the studio wanted me to admit into the studio because he represented competition for them. Now, remember the artist who was so bad that his work was literally nauseating? Yes. So he was much better with words than he was with images, with art. So he talked to the other members of the studio and said, look, we have this huge hulking check coming in every month now. It's guaranteed. Why do we need Howard? If we throw him out of the studio, we can take his share of the money and divide it up between us. Now, what the artists didn't realize their greed got hold of them. And yes, they voted me out of the studio, half of them. The other half left with me. But um, what they didn't, what, what these guys didn't realize is that in reality, this incompetent artist was setting them up. He wanted to take over as art director of the National Lampoon. 
and he did, which meant that the first seven issues of the National Lampoon, from a visual point of view, from a graphic point of view, were vomit-inspiring. Oh, no. And so, and so they lost the account after seven issues, and when I had met them, they were all on their way to being alcoholics and dying at an early age, and when they no longer had me, they went back to being on the track to alcoholism and dying at an early age, and Peter Bramley, the most brilliant of the artists, died young of alcohol. And so I think that the artist, the incompetent artist who pulled off this coup was responsible for his death. But there's no point in thinking that because he died two years ago, too. Yeah. So at any rate, meantime, um, I was trying to start a new art studio with my artists, but I didn't have the same fire for it that I'd had three years earlier when I helped start Cloud Studio. And, and I was writing like a madman. So I was getting up every morning at six o'clock, going naked to a great big Remington manual typewriter. You had to have the force of a sledgehammer just to hit one key. Um, and typing until eight o'clock in the morning and then getting my clothes on, going off to the studio, coming back at night, sitting down at eight o'clock at the typewriter again and typing until 11 o'clock at night. And I was getting tired. So one day, I was covering a parapsychology convention, you know, mind readers and telekinesis and spoon benders and all that kind of stuff in which I don't believe at all. Um, but, and I have no memory. So whenever I'm covering something, I have a pad in my left hand and I have a pen and I'm taking notes like crazy because I'm not going to remember a thing. Um, and somebody saw me doing that and assumed I was a journalist, a writer of some kind and walked over and said, would you like to edit a magazine? And wow, if I could edit a magazine, Michael, I wouldn't have to get up at six in the morning anymore. I could do my writing during the day. Mm -hmm. So, and if I could write for the Boy Scouts of America after being thrown out of the Boy Scouts for incompetence, <laughs> um, then I could write for any audience I truly loved mm -hmm. and on any subject on which I had enough research material. So I said yes, and I didn't ask what the magazine was about. <laughs> um, so I got a call a couple of days ago, uh, days later, giving me the the location and time for a meeting and the name of the person I was going to be meeting with. Now, today, we would instantly take that name and feed it into Google and figure out what his magazine was all about. We, But we couldn't do that back then. There was no Google. Uh -huh. And there was no way to figure out what this magazine was about. And frankly, I didn't care. No. <laughs> So I showed up at the office complex um, where I had this meeting. And to my right, as I walked in, was a converted broom closet. Um, and in it were two guys packing up all their things. Those were the editors. They were leaving. And to my left was the office of the publisher, which had seven windows. I mean, here's a, a, a windowless converted closet to my right and this astonishing office to my left with seven windows overlooking whatever river is on the east side of New York. I've never checked it out. Uh, and you could see two miles up the river and two miles down the river from this astonishing office. Um, and I sat down with the publisher, and he told me the name of his magazine, Circus. And I figured, well, elephants and clowns, I've never been enthusiastic about circuses, but uh, fine. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's a music about, or it's a, a magazine about rock and roll. So 
That is how I accidentally tripped into the rock and roll business. Now, remember, I'd been on a hunt since the age of 13 for the gods inside of us. Yeah. Using not only all my scientific tools, but my ability to be absorbed in the experience. And there's something else I need to tell you. When I was in high school, the kids didn't like me. They didn't like me any better than they liked me when I was in grammar school. But there was something called the program committee. And popular kids want to be president and vice president in the prestige positions, but they don't want to have to do anything. So when it comes to a committee that actually has to get something done, they want nothing to do with it. So they will, if necessary, uh, elect the most unpopular kid in the school uh, as head of that committee if it involves getting something done. Yeah. So the pro we had school assemblies five days a week. The first thing we did in the morning was 45 minutes, and then we went off to our classes. Well, the head of the program committee programs two of those school assemblies a week and MCs five of them a week, which meant going in front of an audience of 350 people every single workday, five days a week, every single school day. And at first it was terrifying. The stage fright was appalling. Yeah. But after a while, you get used to it. And then it becomes as naturally as breathing. Well, one day the juniors came to me. And they said, we're having a dance. And could you advertise it for us? Now, Michael, they did not realize the irony of what they were saying. If there was a party of any kind anywhere in Buffalo, New York, especially a party that involved dancing, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Albuquerque. Um, nonetheless, I agreed to advertise it for them. Now, I can't dance. My parents, every two years, would try to make me normal, and it never worked. And, and one of their efforts to make me normal was to send me to dance classes for a year. And I couldn't learn the box step. I couldn't learn the foxtrot. I couldn't learn the waltz. I couldn't learn anything. So I went in front of this audience of 350 people after putting a piece of music on the turntable, and I started doing something that you could loosely call dancing, but only loosely. Because it looked like a Looney Tune drawn on I when Chuck Jones, the artist who used to draw all the Looney Tunes characters, had just dropped LSD. Um, it was the craziest sight you've ever seen in your life. And I saw, looking out into the audience, I saw the girl who hated me the most. And I saw her eyes widen. And I saw her face melt. And I saw all 350 other faces, eyes widen. And faces melting. And I had a, an out-of-body experience. Talk about looking for the transcendent and the ecstatic experience. I was on the ceiling watching all of this take place. And I saw that audience's energy come together like a big amoebic blob. And I saw it reach a pseudopod like a tunnel out to me. And I saw the energy of that entire audience going through me as if I were an empty pipe up to somewhere around my head and being utterly transmogrified and channeled back down to that audience again in a continuous feedback loop. It was utterly astonishing. And when the music ended and I finished, the audience did something it had never done before in my time in that high school and would never do again. It, and it did it as if it had practiced it all, all of its life. It surged down to the foot of the stage. I mean, all 350 people. <laughs> And they picked me up off the proscenium and they put me on their shoulders and they carried me out of the auditorium and up the pathway to the building 
where we had our classes and only then did they let me down. So I had had a taste of the kind of ecstatic experience. It was a total accident. It was totally unplanned. But that was the kind of ecstatic experience I'd been looking for all along. And now I was the editor of a rock and roll magazine. So I went off to, there There were these two British blues bands that were on their last legs. They were about to die out and never be heard of again. One was called Chicken Shack, and the other one was called Fleetwood Mac. And Fleetwood Mac, despite their death throes, had a date coming up at Carnegie Hall, which is a big deal. And it seats about 300 or 3,000 people. So I had special, you know, I had special access. I had a super duper VIP ticket since I was now the editor of a rock and roll magazine. And I noticed how when you enter an auditorium and you would find your seat, you're very aware of the people on either side of you. You're very aware of the people behind you. You want to look cool. And then the lights go down. And if it's a good concert, after 15 minutes, you lose that self-consciousness. You forget about the people on either side of you and the people behind you. You become totally absorbed in what's going on on the stage. You become one of those melting faces that I had seen when I was dancing in front of the kids at the first school of Buffalo. And so we were half an hour into this astonishing ritual of transcendence, of, of ecstasies. And all of a sudden, the lights went out and the sound went out. All the electricity went out on the stage. It was dark. There was no amplification. But it's Carnegie Hall, which was built to have the acoustics you needed before amplifiers were ever built or imagined. And Mick Fleetwood, who was this gangling, tall string bean of a man, so six foot four, six foot seven, somewhere in that range, came to the foot of the stage. And he lifted his fist and said, fuck it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to rock and roll. And because we had been through a crisis together, and because Mick Fleetwood pulled us back together again in spite of obstacles and in spite of crisis, that experience of being pulled out of ourselves was far greater than it would have been in an ordinary concert. It was astonishing. And Michael, I suddenly realized, like by total accident, I had tripped into the land where the gods were. Because later on in my career, once I was established as the leading PR, as heading the leading PR firm in the music industry, um, if you came to me wanting me to be your publicist, I would give you a speech. And I would say, look, if you expect me to fashion an artificial image for you, an artificial mask, um, what most people call an image, and tell you, like a guy in a plaid suit with a cigar in his right hand, kid, I'm going to make you a star, then I'm going to send you to my best competitor. They do that kind of thing. <laughs> if you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. It's not even about an exchange of money. It is about an exchange of raw human soul. And what do I mean by that? You have an album coming up. You're on a deadline. You have to write a song. Your song is behind. You sit down in front of a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You know you absolutely cannot write the lyrics to another song. You have no idea of how you've ever done it in the past. 
And on a reasonably good day, by four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a lyric in front of you. And on an unreasonably good day, maybe once or twice in your life, that lyric feels so perfect, it feels it wrote itself through you. That's the gods inside of you writing those lyrics for you. My job is to find those gods inside of you. And when you go on stage, and imagine where I got this, when you go on stage and you see the pupils of the audience dilating, you see their eyes widening, you see their faces melting, you feel their collective energy coming through you, you see yourself being danced like a marionette on the stage, you have an out-of-body experience and you're up on the ceiling watching this. And that happens for 70 minutes. Um, my job is to find the gods inside of you that dance you like a marionette on stage. And if you're willing to let me do that, I'll work with you. So where did I get that idea of how the gods inside of you manifest themselves when you're up in front of a blank piece of paper? Well, I was writing every day from the time I was 16 years old. Every day. Yeah. And, and where, more important, did I get that insight into what happens to you on stage? From that experience at the Park School of Buffalo, being carried out on the shoulders of the audience. I knew what my artists were going through. And this had been the kind of experience I had been aiming at ever since I was 12 or 13 years old. Wow. So in rock and roll, I found the land where the gods are. I was in the perfect place to both experience and to analyze the gods inside. So before we sort of chat about the the next part, I guess, because that that, that that was amazing, to be fair. I was making loads of notes and mental notes. But you shared a bit about who you have the opportunity to work with with the PR agency, and then we can we can dive into the into the next part. Well, I invented a new format for the magazine, Circus Magazine. It took me a year to develop. And uh, after 10 months, I came to the publisher and said, look, if you um, will give me your sales figures, I will use simple correlational techniques. Remember, I come from science. Um, and I will be able to finish my formula for, for you. And he gave me the inf- He was very unhappy about giving out the information. He'd never done it before, but he gave me the sales information. And when I was finished, I came back to him and I said, here's the new formula. It breaks every one of your rules for the previous formula. But if you let me implement it, I guarantee you we will increase in sales. And Michael, I've only said that a very tiny number of times in my life. And every time it's been because of a gut level vision, a muscular vision um, that I knew without question was true. And sure enough, we, he let me implement it. And in the next 12 months, we increased 1200 or, or 211% in sales. We more than doubled in sales. We became the largest selling music monthly in North America. And one day, Chet Flippo, one of the founding editors of Rolling Stone, sent me a great big manila envelope um, with six pages of paper typewritten inside. And I pulled up the pieces of paper. Look, a writer does not send things by messenger. It's too expensive. Yeah. But but here he was doing it anyway. It was six pages from his graduate thesis, which he was working on while working at Rolling Stone at the University of Texas. His graduate thesis was on the history of rock and roll journalism. And it was six pages about a little guy hidden away in a windowless converted broom closet who was turning straw into gold. 
And in his words, this person, whoever it was, had invented a whole new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine. And I realized Chet is sending this to me because this is about me. (laughs) (laughs) So Chet Flippo believed I found a, a whole new magazine genre. And it was true because when I left Circus, about three years after I left Circus, Jerry Rothberg, the publisher, abandoned the format. And when he abandoned the format, I felt personally wounded. So when I got a call from the fa- Barry Kramer, the founder of Cream Magazine in Detroit, saying, I'm coming into New York, would you have lunch with me? I said yes. And I gave him the formula because Jerry had abandoned it. And when Shelton Ivany, the editor of Hit Parader, said, could we have lunch? I said yes. And I gave him the whole formula because Jerry had abandoned it. So when you walked into uh, 7-Eleven and went to the magazine shelves uh, where the music magazines were, yes, I had influenced all three of the music monthlies in North America. They were all following the format that I had invented um, for Circus. And um, after I'd been at Circus for 18 months, working seven-hour days, uh, all my waking hours, um, Jerry Rothberg, my publisher, came to me, and he said, don't you think it's about time you got a raise? And that had never occurred to me because I'd never worked for anybody else before. I didn't know the normal kinds of things. Um, So I called my friends from Rags who had gone into Vogue. One of them had worked with Gloria Steinem. Two of them had founded a new magazine called Ms. So they were all in high-level places. And I said, how much of a raise should I ask for? And they said, tell me what you do. Now, remember, two editors had been leaving the day I walked in to meet with Jerry Rothberg. Yeah. So I had replaced two editors. And when I left, um, Jerry Rothberg replaced me with five editors. So I had been doing the work of between two and five people. And um, so I described what I did. And my friends all came to the conclusion that I should get a 60% raise. Wow. So I went to Jerry and I gave him what I'd arrived at, the 60% raise. And Jerry said, I can't do that. And and I never do anything to rescue my dignity. It's not that important to me most of the time. <laughs> yeah. But I did something to rescue my dignity anyway. I don't know why. And I said, okay, well, then I have to give you six months notice. Six months notice. So I found him another editor, and I trained the other editor, and I wrote a 57-page booklet on how to turn out Circus Magazine on the formula. And and then I needed a job, and I was having trouble finding one. And the new editor said, uh, well, I want you to meet somebody named Seymour Stein. So I met Seymour Stein. Seymour Stein was the founder of Sire Records. Sire Records had Echo and the Bunny Men and Eno and the Pet Shop Boys and and Climax Blues Band and Renaissance and a bunch of people like that. Eventually, Seymour Stein would sign, see if you've heard of this one, Madonna. So, <laughs> so Seymour sort of adopted me, and then Seymour's record label was distributed by Gulf and Western, which distributed 14 record labels. Gulf and Western was the biggest conglomerate in the history of the planet up to that point. And uh, Seymour convinced them to hire me to found a public and artist relations department. Now you'd think, but but he's heading a public and artist relations department. What does he know about PR? He's never done it. Um, 
Well, I had been the target of public relations calls, public relations press releases, public relations uh, press kits for two years now. And I knew what worked on me and I knew what didn't. So I had a very strong sense of what could be effective and what could not be effective. And um, I put together a team of five people for some reason. Look, the, the record company, Gulf and Western's record operation was losing money. Everybody else's department was shrinking. My department was growing. They fed me the budgets to do anything I wanted to do. So I had a staff of five people. And I established the very first record company office in Nashville. Because I was flying back and forth between New York and Nashville, one of our most, we out of our 14 record labels, we had 12 utter and complete duds. If you signed with one of those record companies, you were guaranteed oblivion. But we had two companies that were highly effective. And one was Seymour Stein's Sire Records, and the other one was a company called Dot Records in Nashville. And Dot Records was, in number, was the number three country, company in the country in Western business. And they wanted to be number one, and they had the work ethic and the smarts to accomplish it. So I put a tremendous amount of time into Dot Records and Sire Records, and I ignored just about everything else. Um, and it was apparently effective. Um, that's why they kept feeding me more and more money for my budgets. So a year into this, AB or, or Gulf and Western sold its entire record operation to ABC Records. And I got a call from the lawyer who had negotiated the deal, which, why is he calling me? I mean, I'm the last person in the world to call about something like this. I don't know anything about business deals, and I'm not interested in business deals. Um, and he said, look, do you know why we were able to sell that uh, chicken shit little record company to ABC for so much money. And I confessed I had no idea whatsoever. <laughs> and he said it was, it was because of you. And I didn't believe him. And he said, no, listen, listen to me. Look at what you did. You took Dot Records. You took Sire Records. You doubled those two companies in value. In the process, you doubled the value of Gulf and Western's record holdings. So then <clears throat> after I got this call, a, uh, a vice president flew in from ABC and sat all of us down. We'd never been in a room together before, all 57 of us. And he said, um, go on about your business. Just carry on business as usual. There will be no blood flowing in the corridors of this company. And I went into instant red alert um, because that meant to me there will be blood flowing in the corridors of this company, and it's going to happen very soon. <laughs> Yeah. So I got my staff to stop everything and find every single press clipping we had ever obtained and every single radio interview, every single TV interview, and then use standard rate and data service to figure out how much, if you bought that time and space with advertising dollars, how much it would have cost. And by the end of the week, I had a figure for every dollar that Gulf and Western had spent on my department. They had gotten $11 back. Wow. Well, it was the middle of winter when all of this happened. And, um, and when, it's, when there's snow on the streets of New York City, everything freezes. Yeah. And, so, and taxis are very hard to find. So you have to share taxis with people. It's just a common courtesy. Right. And so I got a taxi with another guy who was going more or less to my neighborhood. He was from the advertising agency Young and Rubicam. 
And I explained to him the story of what had just happened and this business of for every dollar you spend, you get $11 back. And he said, no, 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 that's not the right figure at all. And I thought, oh, my God, I knew it was too optimistic. What is it, $5 for every dollar you spend? 50 cents for every dollar you spend? I said, no, in advertising, we know that there is a ratio of five to one between advertising space and editorial copy. If you get editorial copy, it's worth five equivalent inches of advertising space. So you haven't gotten $11, or Gulf and Western hasn't gotten $11 for every dollar it's spent on your operation. Gulf and Western's gotten $55 for every dollar it has spent. Well, the end of the week came after the blood in the corridor speech, and every single person got a pink slip firing notice well with the exception of me (laughs) and and i resigned and i resigned because they fired my whole staff and because i had done the work of five people at circus already i never wanted to have to do that again and i couldn't be effective without my staff so i turned in my resignation and what felt like two hours later which could not be accurate um, it had to be a minimum of eight hours later. The same vice president who made blood in the corridor speech showed up in my office. And he said, take out a blank piece of paper. So I did. He said, write your name at the top. So I did. He said, write the names of all of the staff people you want to keep. So I did. And he said, now write down the salaries you want for each of you. So I gave us all a 20% raise. <laughs> and and suddenly we were the East Coast Public and Artist Relations Department for ABC Records. Um, meanwhile, a few peculiar things were happening. Um, back at Gulf and Western, um, one of our dead record companies was Paramount Records, uh, part of Paramount Pictures, which is another Gulf and Western company. And they were yeah. just dead on arrival. Anything they did was dead on arrival. But they had a talent scout who had this enormous energy and this enormous joy. And he would come into my office every two weeks with the story of another star he just discovered who was going to be a gorilla, who was going to be a smash and yada, yada. And I enjoyed listening to him. It was his enthusiasm was a delight to see. But as soon as he left the room, I did nothing about that artist because it was going to go nowhere. Uh, Being signed by Paramount Ticket, uh, being signed by Paramount Records, was a one-way ticket to oblivion. Well, one day he walked into my office and he said, I found this 13-year-old girl in Borough Park in Brooklyn. And she's going to be a gorilla. She's going to be a smash and yada, yada, yada. And um, and I was busy, about to ignore him. And then he said, and I've got her doing a showcase at the Plaza Hotel um, tomorrow afternoon at noon. You have to be there. Well, I'm the head of not just of the public relations, of the PR department, the press department. I'm also the head of artist relations, meaning I have to be there whenever one of our artists shows up anywhere near New York City to show them either that we support them or to tell them, quite honestly, that we don't. And so I absolutely had to go to this thing. So I walked across Central Park from Columbus Circle, where we I had a 23rd story office. Um, with three windows overlooking Central Park over to the Plaza Hotel. 
And both of those buildings, by the way, now are owned by Donald Trump. Um, little did I realize. And I walked into this uh, nightclub amphitheater. It had circles with tables on them and then higher circles with tables on them and higher circles behind them. And I sat down in my seat waiting for some poor, lame, incapable musical artist to limp and onto the stage and croak. And instead, this four foot, eight inch African-American 13 year old walked out on the stage and it felt like the minute she took the stage, she had grabbed you by the esophagus and put her nose up to yours and said, sit, shake hands, can't obey. And she <laughs> held you by the trachea for 45 <laughs> fucking minutes. It was absolutely <laughs> astonishing, absolutely wow. astonishing. And um, so I went back to my office, and, and the next morning when I walked in, something strange was happening. There was this great big room that had no windows and was kept in total darkness all the time. Nobody ever turned on the light, but it had boxes for Xerox paper. And in those days, we used tons of Xerox paper before everything was electronic. And, um, but that, the morning when I walked in, there was a light shining out of that room, which had never happened before in my time in that company. No. And the, the room, when I looked into it, was empty, and it turned out that what the Xerox papers had been, the boxes had been sitting on, was a conference table, which I had never known before. And there were seats at the conference table, and at every seat, there was a yellow pad, and a newly sharpened pencil. And we were told that we were about to have a staff meeting. Now, the president of our company, shortly before I joined, had made a horrible discovery. His 16-year-old son had leukemia. Oh. And leukemia in those days was a total death sentence. Yeah. So he had stopped everything. He came into the office at 9 o'clock every morning. He spent the entire day locked in his office. One of the things he was doing was finding the most advanced researchers possible on leukemia try to save the life of his son. So our company ran without any leadership, which was perfect for me because I do my best when I'm not under anybody's thumb and can do exactly what I think is right. Um, so it turns out that meanwhile, up on the 32nd floor, there was another company, Paramount Pictures. And Paramount Pictures was brilliantly successful and making lots of money. So the president of Paramount Pictures, who had a reputation of being a five foot four inch titan, who could just, you know, blow your clothes off by simply looking at you, yeah. um, went to the heads of Gulf and Western and said, look, that pissant little record company of yours is losing you money. I'm making you money. Put that record company under my control and I will make it make money. So the reason we were having a staff meeting was because Frank LeBlanc, the president of Paramount Pictures, has just been put over our boss, Tony Martell, right. the head of our company. So we all sat down at these seats with the yellow pads, and it turned out there was an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in front of us, too. And it had a list of some kind, neatly numbered. It was a list of records. It was records that, so far as I know, none of us had ever heard of before. And Tony took his place at the head of the table, 
And he started talking about how we needed to save money because we were losing money and we had to save money on things like yellow pads and newly sharpened pencils. Um, and then behind us at the door, we felt something enter the room. It felt as if thunderclouds, lightning bolts, laser beams, and trumpets had just <laughs> shined their unearthly majesty and glory through the door of our room. And in walked this five foot four inch titan, this Napoleon of the entertainment industry, Frankie Blount. <laughs> yeah. And as he walked toward the head of the table, Tony Martell began to shrink. He slumped in his seat further and further and further. He was a six foot two inch man until his chin was just level, level with the conference table itself. And as Frankie <laughs> Blondes reached the head of the table, Tony slid off of the seat like a jellyfish and slid onto the seat next to it. And uh, Frankie Blondes stood there at the head of the table, looked at this list of records we had in front of us, and turned to department head number one on his left and said, you, what are you doing about this record? And I had heard about bullshitting in oral exams, but I had never seen it. Oh, gosh. All of a sudden, I saw it. I saw this brilliantly detailed story on what this guy was doing about a record he'd never even heard of before. <laughs> Come tumbling out of his mouth with, mouth with enormous persuasive force. And then Yablons got to department head number two and said, you, what are you doing about this record? And the same thing happened all over again, this time with new stunning details of the amazing things this guy <laughs> was doing for this record that he didn't even know existed before. Uh, and twice. finally, Martel got to me and I stood up and I said, uh, um, Blonds. And I stood up and I said, Mr. Blonds, I'm not doing anything about this record. In fact, I'm not doing anything about any of the records on this list. They're all going to disappear. They're phantoms. They don't really exist. Um, but, uh, and then I told him the story of Stephanie Mills, the five foot four inch 13 year old girl I had seen the previous day. And that's where I said 40% of my time is going. And the blondes stood up, walked out of the room without saying a word. And then, you know, how when you're, there are a bunch of people in a room together and the meeting is over and you, you're all in a scrum like a rugby match to get through the door, but you, you never remember it. So as we were in that scrum to get through the door, the vice president over my head grabbed me by the right arm so hard that I had the marks of his fingers on my arm for the rest of my, the week. And he said, you fucking none. If you ever <laughs> do that again, you're fired. Oh. And when I got to my office, my secretary was standing, I don't know, 12 feet outside of my office door. She was anxiously awaiting my arrival. And she said, Mr. Yablons called. Um, he said, or his office called. They said there, he's having a meeting of all of the department heads and his staff tomorrow at noon. And he wants to see you. And he wants to see Stephanie Mills. Stephanie Mills was that 13-year-old girl. Yeah. And two weeks later... The uh, vice president who had threatened to fire me was fired, which is unfortunate because he was a good man. Um, and I became a an unofficial part of the Paramount Pictures team. 
So I actually have been doing, have been doing pictures, uh, motion pictures for the rest of my career. Um, in addition to rock and roll music. So I see the time is rolling by and I need to run a meeting tonight. Um, I have the space development steering committee. It's this group to Buzz Aldrin. Um, either conned me into, kid me up, kidnapped me into, or persuaded me to depending on your view of things, into creating 15 years ago. And um, I run two groups in the space community these days with NASA people and, and the National Science Foundation people and all kinds of people. Oh, and with the former governor of New York State um, and with Newt Gingrich, among other people. So you spent a lot of time trying to almost navigate the randomness or the the strange happenings, if you will, when it comes to the, the entertainment world, right? Like things just seem to have happened and you sort of adapted or changed or just said yes and then figured it out afterwards, you know? Like not not knowing the, the names of the magazines or you just end up seem, seemingly anyway in the right place at the right time. But we all know that a lot of that is from saying yes to the opportunity rather than praying that it turns up. But what what sort of sparked this idea behind the book then? Because the book seems to me to blend like art and science and poetry together. How did you how did you decide to put them in the same space? Okay, in nineteen eighty eight, um, after a tremendous success, after leading what became the largest PR company in the music industry. And working with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, etc. Um, I got very sick. Nobody knew what it was. My doctors couldn't figure out what it was, but I ended up too weak to talk and too weak to speak. Um, and, um, at that point, I went back to my science, which is something I'd wanted to do for the previous two years, but hadn't been able to figure out a way to do. I had started writing my first book in 1984, and it was 1988 when I got sick. So I had four years of momentum on that first book, and um, I had a problem. I was now literally a legend in the rock and roll business. Um, when Billboard put together its guide to music publicity as a textbook for students studying music publicity in college, there were 20 uninterrupted pages just on me and on this technique that I developed called perceptual engineering. And um, because of that, no one was going to take me seriously in science, despite the fact that that's where I had gotten my start. Despite the fact that when I was 16 years old and working at the world's largest cancer research center, I'd come up with the theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe that predicted something that wouldn't be discovered for 38 years, dark energy. Despite all of that. So I needed to reestablish my credentials in science. And it took, Michael, it took more than a decade. Um, and now at this point, I've either been published or I've given lectures at scholarly conferences in 12 different scientific fields, everything from quantum mm -hmm. physics on up. And I was two years ago, um, I was out in California 
staying near Sunset Boulevard, same neighborhood where I used to do all my work back then. And I was having lunch with Eric Gardner, who had managed, he had been the road manager for the Jefferson, Jefferson Airplane. And he had managed, oh God, uh, Todd Rundgren and all kinds of people. And he's a friend from a long time ago. And I was telling him some of the stories of the things that had happened to me in the music industry. And he was saying, you've got to turn this into a book. Well, if he'd said that at any previous point, the answer would have been no. No, I have to reassert my scientific credentials. But he said it at the right moment. He said it just after I'd given my first uh, presentation at an aerospace conference, my first presentation at an information science summit, um, my first presentations at a whole bunch of diverse fields, governance in a UN conference. I'd been a keynote speaker. Um, so I had finally at least gotten a toehold back in science again when it comes to credibility. And so I yeah. realized that he was right. That if I didn't write these stories down, they would die when I when I died, and I needed to get them down. So, and then, and I didn't know how to go about it. And then Jeff Tamarkin, who used to be the editor of Trouser Press and edits things today, and I can't remember what they are. Jeff Tamarkin said, "Look, if I do an interview with you um, for your latest book, can I send you a bunch of questions by email?" And can you answer them by email? And they were all questions about my music career. And I sat down to answer the question. And within three days, I had 10,000 words. And he only wanted 800. Uh, so I realized I had just started my book. That I had just started Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me. And look, the job of science is to look at the mysteries, in particular, the mysteries, the things that we have no handle on scientifically, and bring them into the realm of science and do what my friend Robin Fox, who is the founder of the anthropology department at uh, Rutgers University, calls participant observer of science. It's what Margaret Mead did when she went off to Samoa, and she so successfully absorbed the tribe she was studying she so successfully became what that tribe was that she was named a chieftain, even though they was against their laws to allow women to be chiefs. And at the same time, because she was so thoroughly absorbed, because she experienced things the way a Samoan experiences them, she was in the perfect position to write about the Samoans and to extract their scientific lessons. And, um, and I had done that in the music industry. And it was all going to disappear. You know, at that point, I was probably 74 years old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could be hit by a bus at any moment or get COVID or something like that. So I started to write the book. And normally, a writer regards it as a good day if he or she writes 250 printable words a day. And I was writing this book at the rate of 6,000 to 8,000 words a day. This book had been gestating in me for so long that it wrote itself through me. So that's how this, and, and look, again, science is about understanding the mysteries. Music is one of the greatest mysteries in human life. It serves so many functions simultaneously. You can regulate the emotions of a crowd with music. How do we know that? Because that's what cafe owners do 
when they're choosing the the music that they're going to play. That's what a DJ does when he decides to start slow, slowly build up, then come down again, then build up even further. He is regulating the moods of that crowd. Music is a bonding mechanism. It brings us together. We all have national anthems. And music, I helped the gay community come out of the closet in 1976, even though I'm not gay, because they had an anthemic music, a music that pulled them together and spoke on behalf of their collective soul. And it was disco. And I did that all through my career. I helped country and Western music get out of the Bible Belt ghetto and go national and international. Because the people in the in the Bible Belt had a right to exist, and music was their way of stating their collective identity. Um, the same was true of rap, which I helped get off the ground. So I've had experience no other science person has ever had, literally in history, yeah. surrounding a mystery of the greatest kind. One I think I've only scratched the surface of in the tiniest of ways. But at least I owe that tiniest of understandings, plus all of the astonishing stories, and the insight that you work from soul. You work from the fires inside of you. You work from the gods inside of you. You work from your passion points. That is when you are most real. And that's when you have the most to offer to your fellow human beings. That kind of insight was essential. It's part of my legacy. Um, at this point, I have seven books. That's as far as I've gotten in my legacy. I have two more books on the drawing board. But Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, in a sense, is the most important book that I've ever written. Because it dives into mysteries with firsthand experience of a kind at least no science person has ever had before. Does that make sense? It, it really does. And I, I love the the pull of legacy with it. I love the fact that you you felt almost compelled to write it. And how can we get access to the book? How can we buy it? It's your chance to, to share that and how people can find out more about you. Well, the book is on Amazon.com. Um, it's on BarnesandNoble.com. I don't know if those are accessible in England and Europe. I'm not sure. Um, and um, finding out more about me, it's howardbloom.net. Howard, H-O-W-A-R-D, bloom, like the flowers that bloom in the spring, tra-la, uh, B-L-O-O-M, uh, .net. And uh, there's more than you'll ever want to, I mean, there's so much stuff to read in so many different areas that it's ridiculous on that site. All right, Howard. Well, thanks for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate you carving out the time. And for those that are brand new to the show, make sure you do subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. Michael, it was a pleasure.